Hello, this is Christy Amira Harfouche, and you're listening to the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. We have a message for you today from Reverend John Harfouche. For more information, live broadcasts, and video teachings, connect with us online at globalrevival.com and join us every week for the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. Get your Bible in your hand this morning. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians and the third chapter. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he is uh, correcting them on a great many things. And he says, and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are you able, for you are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal? And walk as men? Implying, of course, that there's a different way to walk, which Paul enumerates quite clearly in his epistles, and which we know is the purpose of our faith. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So he says... For while there is envying among you and strife and division, are you not carnal and walk as natural men, as normal everyday men? For as long as there are those among you who are saying, I am of Paul and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Are you not more mindful of the natural than of the spiritual? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth, Paul and Apollos, (laughs) are one. And every man shall receive of his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, his planting his farming, his cultivating. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Put your hands on your spirit this morning and say, I am a believer. I I 
have a receptive spirit. I have an attentive heart. My body is full of energy. I know that God has something for me today. I will hear it. I will heed it. And I will change. And I will not leave this place today the way that I came in. If you believe it, shout like you've never shouted before. Because you've never been in this place on this day before. And what God has for you today is something different than you've received before. It's on another level than you've received before. Thank God. Thank God that he has more for us and that our lives can be changed and elevated on a regular basis that we can go from glory to glory. You may be seated this morning and for the past eight weeks or so, we have been focusing heavily on the early church period Obviously, we always focus on the early church period as a pre-denominational church. But we have been not only reading from the word of God and the epistles that were written to the church in the first century, but also reading the writings of people that lived at the same time that the Bible was written, both pagans and Christians, people that were persecuting the Christians and The Christians who the books of the Bible were written to. We have been studying that and focusing on that. And through that study, looking at some important facets of the early church. The authority that the early church walked in. The power that the early church walked in. The the leadership of the early church, the unity of the faith all over the earth. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And we're going to be continuing along those lines this week. Paul was writing to the Corinthians because there were divisions among them. There were divisive people among them who were creating divisions in the church saying, oh, this one is of this person, this one is of this person, this one is of Paul, this one is of Apollos, this one is of Kephas. And he's also writing to them because there were some things that were happening in the church that were unrighteous. And the perpetrators of those sins had not been given the boot from the church and were still up in the church in their sin with their attitude like it was all right for them to do that. Now that's not what we're talking about today, but it's just a side note. (laughs) But Paul is writing, and what does he say? 
he tells them, this is a book of the Bible. This is an epistle that was written to the Corinthian church. And he tells the Corinthian church, apostolic church, founded in the first century, that up until this point, he could only minister to them as babies with milk. And even now, in this very epistle, he is ministering to them as babies with milk. Now, there's a second epistle. The church, you know, did well. Things were corrected, right? The church received correction. But at this time, he's writing this. I mean, it's very strange to think of any part of the Bible as being uh, milk or basic. Any one of the writings of Paul, because they're all incredibly, blatantly God-inspired, right? You know, we read from Ignatius, who was, when he was writing to the, or Polycarp, when he was writing to the Philippians, he said, none of us can rise to the level of Paul. Go read his epistle, right? I'm not telling you these things as if it's new. You've received the word and you have received this letter from Paul. Go read it. And it will confirm the word that you've received, which is quite a statement because it is implying that there was the faith that was handed to them and that the written word was a confirmation of that faith that was taught to them verbally. But what does he say? He says, you are carnal. You are not able to walk after the spirit which is a very bad thing for Paul to tell you if you've read Romans. Because when he talks about those that walk after the flesh, those that are carnal, it's not a group that you want to be in. You want to be those that walk after the Spirit, right? There's therefore now no condemnation for those that walk after the Spirit. Well, you don't want to be those that are walking after the flesh. You don't want to be stuck in the, oh, wretched man that I am position, right? Well, he's telling the Corinthian church that at this time, because of strife and because of divisions, because of trying to separate themselves into groups or denominations, let's say, of different teachers, that they are unable to walk after the Spirit and to walk worthy of their position as Christians. He says... Who is Paul and who is Apollos? Now, I'd like to point out that Paul is not saying that they have no fathers in the faith and that they should not follow teachers. And we know this because of what he says later. He says uh, in chapter 4, verse 14, you don't have to go there, I'll read it to you. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. As my own children, I warn you. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be followers of me. 
But he first makes it clear that he's not saying this as Paul. Representing himself and saying, I, Paul, am better than Apollo. He says, Paul and Apollo are nothing. No foundation can be laid different than the foundation that Christ laid. And so it's not about following Paul. It's about following Christ. Like he says, follow me as I follow Christ. There is one faith. There is one foundation. Like Jude said, contend earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Right? Paul is saying the same thing here. And he says that for we are laborers together with God, him and Apollos, and ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. So he's saying, I, Paul, planted that church. I have begotten you. I laid the foundation of that church and another buildeth thereon, speaking of Apollos. And me and him are fellow laborers. But then he says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I founded that church. I built the foundation of that church. But that foundation is the foundation that was laid by Jesus Christ. So I laid the foundation, but no foundation can be laid, but that which is laid by Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is, this is not a Pauline church. This is a Christian church. It might have been founded by Paul and watered by Apollo, but it is a Christian church founded on the only foundation that can be laid. And he says, now, he says, now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. He said earlier, we are one, right? But let every man, wait, he said we are one, but then he says, Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. And so he talks about the fruit. He says, any person that builds on this foundation, their work shall be made manifest. It will be shown for what it is, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Yet so as by fire. 
And then he says something, and I want to I point something out that you may never have noticed, that might have never, maybe it has never been mentioned to you, maybe it has, I don't know. But he says, know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Now, I just want to point something out. In the English language, we no longer have singular and plural you. Thou is the singular of you or ye. Previously in the English language, we had the ability to distinguish if we were speaking with one person or multiple people when we said something. But for simplicity's sake, and because everybody's lazy, we switched to just saying... The plural, regardless. So now the singular and the plural is the same. We have abandoned the thou. And thou is one of the words that people immediately recognize as um, being like King Jamesian. Because we don't use it anymore. But he does not say, thou are the temple of God. And he does not say, You are the temples of God. He says you, plural, speaking to the church, are the temple, singular, of God. Now I have rarely, if ever, heard that pointed out. Because as an individual Christian, in most of the modern world... People think, I, John, am the temple of Jesus Christ. I, John, I, Steve, I, Sarah, am the temple of Jesus Christ. Like an army of individual temples. But in every instance where we're referred to as the temple, it is singular. And that should not surprise you because that is exactly the purpose of what Paul is saying in this scripture. He's saying, me and Apollo are one. You are one. All of us are one. And it's the separating and the segregating that is the problem. That is what is making you carnal. That is what is making you mindful of the natural. Because you are more mindful of the natural separations between these people than you are of the unity of the Spirit of God that is in you. Hallelujah. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Which temple ye are? Are any of those words plural? So when it's talking about a man defiling the temple of God, it's not just talking about how people use that scripture. Which is to say that if you sin against your body, right? Know ye not that you're the temple of God. If you do something that defiles your body, then you're sinning against God because God lives in you. And that's true. But is that what he's talking about in the context of this scripture? 
No, he's talking about people building on the foundation of Jesus Christ and their works being made manifest as either true fruitful works of God or as hay and stubble. And so the man that defiles the temple of God, the temple of God is the church. The temple of God is the body of Christ. And what's being talked about here is a man that defiles the body of Christ that that tries to build up something that is not of God. Him shall God destroy. Right? And in verse 21, he says, Therefore, let no man glory in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas, that's Peter, or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and ye are Christ's and Christ is God's. Right? My goodness. My goodness. He says, after he goes, he, he's, he, he continues on, these things, brethren, the corrections that I've given you, I have in a figure transfer, transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. So he says, I say Paul and Apollos... As a metaphor, I have transferred these things to Paul and Apollos in a figure, as a metaphor, as a simile, so that you could recognize this universally. This is not a beef between me and Apollos. This is a metaphor so that you can recognize that you should not be puffed up one against another. That you should not think of men above that which is written, that which is scripture. Now, I won't comment on the fact that Paul's writings became scripture and Apollos's didn't. And I'm not going to say anything bad about Apollos. Apollos was taught the word more fully by Priscilla and Aquila. Right? He had a part of what the word was, and he was raised up by Priscilla and Aquila, ministered to by Priscilla and Aquila. And even Paul says, it's not about me and Apollo. But I'll tell you one person whose works were tried by fire and still stand 2,000 years later, you're holding it in your hand. You're holding it in your hand. Right? But I don't want to get off my purpose. My purpose is to talk to you about that foundation that was laid by Jesus Christ. That no man can lay any other foundation. Anything else that someone tries to build up upon that foundation that is not of God will not last and will eventually be destroyed. And all that will be left is what is consistent with that foundation. Because if it's stone and precious gems and it's built up strong, it lasts. 
And if it's hay and stubble, then it burns away. But just like we talk about the wheat and the tares in reference to individuals, right? The foundation, the field, the building, whether it's you are his husbandry or you are his building, is one. And it's always one. Right? Go with me to the book of Ephesians. And we've spent quite a bit of time in Ephesus recently because we've been reading writings from people that were from the church in Ephesus. Ignatius, who was from Antioch, but was trained in Ephesus under John. Polycarp, who was from Ephesus and was trained under John and became the bishop of Smyrna. Irenaeus, who was from Ephesus and was trained under Polycarp and became the bishop in uh, Lyons in what is today France, which was a very different place back then. So we spent a lot of time in Ephesus, right? Go with me. Let's go to... um, Let's go to Ephesians. We'll go to chapter 2. And in verse 19, Paul says, Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord. In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now that's, how's that for consistency? Uh, Paul is very consistent in his teachings about the church. But I want to point something out because Paul continues to speak of the foundation that was laid by Christ and the apostles. He says in Corinthians, I laid the foundation, but no man can lay the foundation but Christ. He says in Ephesians that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom All the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. And so the chief cornerstone, the thing that connects us all together, is Jesus Christ. But this is interesting because Paul refers to himself as a laborer. And Apollo as a laborer. He says we are fellow laborers, right? This is a common term that Paul uses for ministers. He calls them fellow laborers, right? He calls himself a laborer before he refers to you as the husbandry of God. As the field, the planting of God. 
What does a laborer do in a field? A laborer cares for the field. What does a laborer do on a building? A laborer builds the building. How many people know that most people that build a house hire someone else to do the actual building part? But they might have a blueprint that shows exactly how they want it to be assembled. That person has to do it exactly how they say they do it. In fact, if the person does something different than they say, and they have a contract and a blueprint, all that person did gets tore down and gets rebuilt to spec. And the person who hired the labor does not pay them because they didn't do what they said. Right? Now, listen, if the Lord can talk to you in parables, I can talk to you in parables. Not many of us are farmers. So sometimes you just have to make things clear for people. See, the foundation is laid by Jesus Christ. The faith is the faith that was once delivered. But the laborers are talked about in Ephesians. The laborers are the apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists sent to build the church until we all come in the unity of the faith unto a perfect man. And so you're the planting of God. You're the field of God. But God is not the only one tilling in the field. His laborers, his body, his people, his hands, his feet labor in the field. And each and every one of us as a member of the body of Christ has a part in that labor, has a part in that building. And that's why Paul can say the foundation is built on the apostles and prophets with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. It's why he can say, I laid the foundations in Corinth, but no foundation can be laid other than that which Jesus laid. So the foundation in Corinth, despite not being founded by Jesus in his earthly ministry, was the foundation Jesus laid. It was identical with the foundation that Jesus laid because there is no foundation that can be laid but that foundation. And so when a church is founded today, that church is founded by the apostle that laid that foundation, but it is the same foundation that the church in Corinth was founded on, that the church in Jerusalem was founded on, that the church in Antioch was founded on. And I don't mean it is a identical foundation. I mean it is one and the same foundation. Because there's only one building. There's only one temple. Unto N, singular, holy temple. He really makes a clear point of it. So it's weird that attention is not drawn to it more often. Right? And that foundation, what is that foundation? What foundation did Jesus lay for the church? He laid quite a foundation because he not only died and resurrected to give us a new nature and the new birth, but he laid the foundation through his earthly ministry and he finished 
the foundation on the cross when he said, it is finished. And so he preached and he taught and he did miracles. He did not just lay a philosophical foundation. He did not just leave us a philosophy or some information about God. He laid a foundation that was a living doing. It was a living activity. It was something that you see every single one of the apostles doing. And it's something that we saw in the writings of those that came after the apostles as something that was still happening. Because the foundation is not just a foundation of words. It is a foundation of actions. And so the church is sent, the church is sent with the Great Commission to do what? The same works that Jesus did and greater works. We talked about this last week. The doctrine of the apostles was not just information. It was action. It was not just words. It was what they did. That's why when Jesus was healing people, they were astounded at his doctrine. Right? So our foundation is a foundation that includes not only knowledge of who God is, not only a clearer image of what God is like and a clearer concept of his nature and his love towards us, not only a foundation of professing faith in the resurrection, but a foundation of teaching and preaching, of evangelizing, of healing the sick, of casting out devils, that is our foundation. That is our inheritance. That is what the church looks like and acts like, and that's what the body of Christ is called to do in the world today. You have to understand the significance of the temple coming after the Old Testament times. Because there was a time when there was the temple in Jerusalem. The temple that Solomon built. There was a time before that when there was the tabernacle. The one place that God dwelled. And there was the temple after that. And then there was the second temple, the temple. And so something that came out of the Old Testament, the old covenant of the faith, was that there was always this one temple that was the singular temple. But the successor to that temple, which was naturally destroyed, was not another physical building that was built. It was a supernatural building that was built out of lively stones. That one temple, that one place where man reaches God is you. Because there is one mediator between man and God. And it's Jesus, the head of the body of Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so the hope of the world transitioned 
from a single physical temple of worship to a temple, a building that was built by God. So you got to understand the significance of what's being said in light of the world that they came from. It's been a long time since there was a temple, a one temple. But it should, it should stick out to you that Jesus fulfilled the law. He perfected it. He himself said, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Did he do that? What was he talking about? He was talking about his body. Who's his body? Oh, listen, listen, because people read that scripture and they think, oh, he's talking about him dying and being buried and rising again. And he is. But he said this. He said this concerning his resurrection. He said this concerning his body. Who is his body? And so we are an one temple. So no wonder, no wonder Paul is so focused on the unity, is so focused on the reconciliation, is so focused on stopping the backbiting and opinions and issues and the being full of problems with humans and not being mindful of the spiritual truth of what the church is. We spent quite a long time last week talking about how people have issues with people. People have all kinds of issues with people. But that's not new. Because that's what the church that he wrote to was dealing with. And he said, y'all need to get over your issues with people. And recognize that you are Christ's. That you are one body. That you are one temple. A kingdom divided against itself can't stand. Right? Well, a temple. You're one temple, right? So in Ephesians, in chapter 2, I read this. Uh... In whom also ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. You are builded together into a habitation. Your lively stones in a home, in a building, right? For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles... If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me, you word, given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in few words, whereby when ye read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of God, in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, 
as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What he, he's talking about truths that were not made known to man before. Things that man did not know. The fulfillment of the promise that man did not have a full experience of. But what happened to those truths? Did Jesus write them down and sign the book and it was the book of Jesus? No. Strangely, the Lord, after teaching for 40 days after his resurrection, left and said, it's better for you that I go. And these truths were then revealed unto his holy apostles, his sent ones, his prophets, by the Spirit. If Jesus did this, it should tell us something about the way Jesus expects his mission to be carried out. He could have just as easily revealed these things while he was teaching. But how many of you remember, see, he's talking about the gospel being sent to the Gentiles. That's you, right? That's us. How many of you remember the vision that Peter had where he saw all the foods that he did not eat as a, as a Jew. And the Lord said, do not pollute what I have sanctified, right? What I have made holy. He revealed to the apostles. He revealed to Peter and to Paul. He revealed to James and the presbyters in the church of Jerusalem. He revealed that the gospel should go to the Gentiles after his ascension. Now, let me be clear. He said, go to all nations, preaching the gospel to every creature. But he didn't explain. He didn't specify. And so their understanding that the Spirit revealed to them was consistent with the faith that was delivered to them by Christ. It was a fuller understanding. It was them saying, oh, that's what he meant. And then after the gospel went, and you see the same thing, after the gospel went to the Gentiles, there was a disputation about whether the Gentiles should adopt the Old Testament law. It's interesting that people that have an issue with organized religion and organized Christianity but claim to be Christians don't have an issue with the Council of Jerusalem. Because there was a, a meeting held by the apostles and the elders in the church of Jerusalem to ask whether the Gentiles should be circumcised and follow the Old Testament laws. Without that meeting, and without believing that the Holy Spirit works through human beings in order to make his will known, Gentile Christianity doesn't exist in the way that it exists now. Every person that doesn't believe in organized religion should probably be following all of the Old Testament laws. 
which is ironic because that would be an even more organized religion than the one that they currently have a problem with. And listen, the decision wasn't made by men by the will of men. If you go look at the account, they look at the word that they received from God and they go, yeah, this is what Jesus taught us. We can't add to that. We can't say that their salvation is insufficient to save them. We can't say that they need to add to the, add the law to their salvation when the law was incapable of saving us. And so the decision was one that was built on the foundation. But it was built on the foundation. It was clarified. It was further built on after the fact. Now, listen, that's not because it was an addition. That's what I'm saying. I'm going to have to go to the account now. You, you, people, are, people are uncomfortable. No, hold on, hold on, hold on. Right? Turn with me to the book of Acts. We'll come back to Ephesus. Uh, chapter 15. Now, has anyone here, is anyone here aware that Jesus followed the law? Right? He fulfilled every facet of the law. He was the only human being, and it's because he was God, but he was the only human being who was able to fulfill the law. And so Jesus followed every facet of the law. His apostles were Jewish. His apostles lived according to the law. Paul lived according to the law before his revelation, his gospel that he received, right? So Jesus followed the law. And this is an argument that's made by people on the regular because we refer to them as Judaizers. How many of you know there's a term in the New Testament that is Judaizers? And it's referring to people that say that Christians have to fulfill the Old Testament law in order to be saved, right? It says in chapter 15, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and presbyters, elders, about this question. Right? And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and the elders, the presbyters, right? Where we get the word priest. And they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, 
Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he said, listen, you know that God gave a vision to me, a direction to me that the Gentiles should receive the gospel. And God, which knoweth the hearts, beareth them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. I put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. The law doesn't save us. So why would it save them? Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And so which one of these two things was man's religion versus God's religion? Which one of these things was consistent with the foundation that Jesus Christ laid and which one of them wasn't? Right. The Pharisees were incorrect. The Pharisees were incorrect because of everything that Paul taught, because of everything that Peter taught, because the law could not save anyone. And so saying that the law is required for salvation is a contradiction in itself. And so Jesus laid a foundation and it came time to determine what was consistent with that foundation. And there were religious who held to the laws. They still lived according to those laws. Who said they need to live according to the laws that I live to or else they can't be saved. And Peter said, no, that is not the case. Because we're not saved by the law. We know the law could not save us. We are saved by Jesus Christ. Well, if you don't believe that the church was founded by God and you don't believe that people received the blessing of God in order to minister on his behalf and you don't believe in the church being people empowered by God, then this conversation might as well have never taken place. Now, you could choose to agree with Peter anyway. And say it's more consistent with what Jesus said. But how many of you know how essential it was for the church to have leaders that recognized what was the foundation of the faith and what was not? And how many of you recognize that it is by the actions of these men of God that we even have these scriptures handed down to us? So that's what Paul is talking about when he's talking about things being revealed by the Spirit to the apostles and the prophets. So that's not to say 
that we're going to replace or we should replace the scripture. We should replace the foundation with something else because there is no foundation that can be laid, but then that which is laid by Jesus Christ and everything that is built on it will be tried. So that revelation, that revelation is to help the building, is to help the building up of the foundation. But that revelation is by definition something that people sitting under Jesus' ministry did not realize prior to that revelation. He was teaching it. And they didn't understand the parables. They didn't understand what he meant in its fullness. They didn't fully understand the Great Commission when he said to go unto every nation. And so the revelation that came to the apostles and prophets allows the building. But the foundation is what that building has to be builded on. You don't get this meeting. You don't get this book. You don't get any of it without the church. None of it exists without the church. None of it exists without organized religion. Because they were organized. What happened? Paul starts preaching that the Gentiles don't have to follow the Old Testament law. Other people hear him preach that and get upset. He gets called on the carpet by who? The apostles and priests at Jerusalem? So was this just a kumbaya circle? Was this a hippie community? He was accountable. Paul was accountable. And what the Lord revealed to him had to be tried and confirmed according to what Jesus had taught them. According to what Jesus had handed them. And what happened? He got there and everybody was talking and talking and talking. People were loud speaking against what he was saying. And Peter stood up. And he said, what are you doing? Why would you put this yoke around their neck? Why would you return to a place of legalism. And the multitude had to keep their silence. That's leadership. If it was just a commune, guess what you would have had? A bunch of opinions. A bunch of people that had issues. Without Peter stepping up, the church would have ended right there. Because you would have ended up with a split. Not 
because of the foundation that Christ laid, but because people being more mindful of man than the foundation that Christ laid. So why do we talk about the early church? Why do we talk about, why do we refer to ourselves as pre-denominational? Well, because there was a time, there was a very long time, a very, very long time, where the church was able to stay in unity around that foundation in its organizational structure. Where there was no denominations. There was just the church. And there were people in that church. And there were people in that church that were teaching things that were consistent with the foundation. And there were people that would crop up and try to teach things that were inconsistent with that foundation. And because of the unity of the faith, those things that were inconsistent were able to fade away. Were able to be overcome because the, the inclination, the intent, the focus of the people at that time was the reconciliation. Was let's figure out which thing is correct and go by that. Let's find out what matches the gospel that we were handed by Jesus and let's go by that. The focus wasn't, oh, I just follow this guy. Oh, I'm more impressed with this guy. He's fine, but I like this guy. The focus wasn't, oh, you disagree with me about the word of God? That's fine. You can follow whoever you want. I follow this guy over here. We talked about love last week and how the church was made out of people. We talked about all the people named in Paul's epistles, people that worked alongside him, people like Demas, who was with Paul in some of his epistles, working with him, but later forsook the faith. These are human beings, right? But we talked about the love that is required for us to stay in unity. That if we've got problems with people, then we can't be in unity with them. If we've got problems with people, then we can't recognize the spiritual truth. That if we've got problems with people, according to Paul, we are carnally minded, walking after the flesh, unable to enter into the truth. Something changed when the church stopped making their goal the spiritual and stopped looking to Christ and pushing for unity and started fragmenting itself into earthly organizations and identifying with them. There is one church. There is one church. There is one foundation. There is one temple and there is one building. And you know from what Christ taught that if someone believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth 
that they will be saved. They will be born again. They will become a part of that body. And so every single person, no matter what their level of understanding of the gospel is, if Jesus is the Lord of their life, they are your brother. They are your sister. They are part of that one body, that one temple with you. And so why is being pre-denominational important? It's because according to the foundation, there is one church. And if we're more mindful of natural divisions of differences of culture and opinion, of differences of dress and genre of music and style and and language and, and vocabulary, then we cannot walk after the Spirit. Let's go back to Ephesians. And let's go to chapter 4. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. With all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. How many of you recognize that meekness, that humility, and that forbearance are things that you have to have if you're going to deal with people and love them, and reckon them as your brothers and sisters, even when they are way off base and wrong. Because there are other Christians who will speak against your faith, who will say that the way that you worship the Lord is wrong. You know, you have to be like, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Right? And if you have the opening to, expound to them the word of God. Show them like Peter showed those who were complaining at the council of Jerusalem. Show them what the word is, what the foundation is, what we believe, but not out of a place of my group of Christians is right and your group of Christians is wrong. Not out of a place of what kind of Christian are you, what kind of Christian am I, but in full recognition of the fact that they are your brother in the Lord, that they are your sister in the Lord, that they are a part of that temple out of love to help them so that they can walk more rightly with the Lord. Like Priscilla and Aquila did with Apollo. He didn't have a full understanding of the gospel. But they didn't kick him out. They didn't badmouth him 
and say nobody should be buying his tapes, go buy Paul's tapes? No, they gave him a fuller understanding of the gospel. They helped him out because they knew that even though he only had a part of the picture, he was a Christian. He was a follower of the Lord. He was seeking after the things of God. And there's no reason for division if our goal is the same thing. There's no reason to create separations between us if we're fighting for the same cause. You know, you got people, you got people. In America, we have a political system with only two parties. In other countries, they have political systems with more than that. But in America, politics is a team sport. If you're going to vote for one policy, you have to vote for a bunch of other policies that have nothing to do with it. Because that's what that party's platform has in it. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because a bunch of people in this country that disagree with each other about almost everything fundamentally can make a coalition and vote to get something done. Meanwhile, Christians who have the same mission as each other who are part of the same kingdom, who are part of the same body. Don't even see each other as a team. You got people waving the flag for their earthly U.S. political team. Standing beside People that don't even believe in God. High-fiving them. Because they're on the same team. But Christians... want to have a problem with other Christians... Christians want to act like they have nothing to do with other Christians. Christians! And listen, it's not just that the arguments that Christians have are largely semantic and meaningless in the long run, even though that's true. It's, it's because the focus is not on the spiritual truth of what the body of Christ is. The focus is on men. The focus is on people throughout history. And they'll say, oh, will you follow the philosophical writings of this guy from the third century, but I follow the philosophical writings from this guy from the 10th century. How about you follow Christ? Right? And you can say, I'm a big fan of this person, and you might not be, but we're brothers and sisters because we follow the Lord. Because we follow the Lord, right?
With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another, long-suffering. I'll tell you what, you need some long-suffering sometimes. (laughs) Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Earnestly striving to maintain, says one translation. Earnestly striving to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. And so if there's another Christian out there who loves Jesus, no matter how much of an issue you have with them, no matter how wrong their doctrine is, You're one body with them. And so the correct action is not to separate. The correct action is to show what is the truth. What is correct doctrine? What was handed to us? That is why we contend for the faith that was once delivered. Hallelujah. 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 One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all, but unto every one of us. And he goes on. He goes on to explain that we're all different parts in particular. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I, I read Ephesians 4 like every time I'm up here. And we talked about it last week, you know, whatever. Um, right? And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Dr. Harfush said, about this scripture, he said, it's till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. It's not till we all come to the unity of the faith. It's till we all come in the unity of the faith. Uh, Hallelujah. Because... The faith that was delivered is not divided. The faith is one. The body of Christ is not divided. The body of Christ is one. The truth is not divided. The foundation is not divided. The foundation is one. But just like the Corinthian church, people in it, were more mindful of the human separations than they were of the spiritual truth. And so the church cannot be divided and the foundation cannot be broken up and the gates of hell cannot prevail against what God built. But your opinions about other people 
and your being mindful of carnal things will prevent you from living according to that reality and receiving the benefits of it. That is why we preach what we preach. That is why we look at those things. And listen, the gospel that we've been handed, the scripture, the word of God that we've been handed has in it everything we need to know what that faith is, what that foundation is, and to try it and to prove it with the word. And when any voice or idea comes, we can try it and we can prove it with the word. So why do we read from and why have we been reading from people who also lived at that time that were not the writers of the Bible? Because it's through their actions that we have the Bible. They preserved the Bible. And so the Bible confirms that their words are biblical. We look at the scripture and what they wrote and we can recognize, yes, these are the ones that the book was written to because the words that they speak are the words that were in the book and their words confirm the Bible because their words record historically that this is that word. This is that faith. That was handed down. And so we need them. And from their perspective, it was the same thing. Because they had the faith that they were handed. And they had the confirmation of scripture. They had the word that was taught to them verbally. And they had the word that was written and handed down. And so we have a confirmation in the early church, of how the church should operate, of what the church should do. The church didn't get organized after the apostles were martyred. The church was already organized. The church was already appointing leaders in every city that they went to. The books of the New Testament are written to the church. They talk about the leadership in the church. They talk about the way things are structured. And they show us how the church should act and how the church should be. Doctor and doctor were, were told by the Lord many, many years ago to build a prototype end time church. And, and Dr. Robin asked the Lord, what does that look like? And he said, it looks like the book of Acts. It's in the book of Acts. It's in the epistles. It's in the writings of Paul. What we've been handed is not a philosophy for an individual. It is a church made out of living stones. It is a body made out of living stones. My Lord, my Lord. Listen, if you don't understand that yet, then you need to study more. Because when you see it, you'll recognize it in every scripture in the Bible. My goodness. Well, I, I don't want, listen, I, I, there's something that I want to share with you that I haven't even touched on yet. But it, it is in regards to this. It is in regards to this. Turn with me to the book of Philemon.
We've talked about Timotheus, Timothy in the past few weeks, the bishop of Ephesus, right? And we've studied, we've read in, in Ephesians, and, and like I said when I started out, we've been talking about a lot of people who are connected with the church of Ephesus. But this book was written to the Colossians. Um, well, to a particular Colossian named Philemon. How many of you know that most preachers don't really go to the book of Philemon very much? It's not a, a book that you're usually, I mean, it's like turn to the book of Philemon and people are like, what, excuse me? Um, how long has that been there? But like the third epistle of John, some of the shorter epistles in the Bible is were written to individuals, right? Well, this is directly in line with what we were talking about last week about the fact that the church is people. That the, that the church in the, in the first century was people just like you, learning under the apostles. People being taught to recognize the truth and to walk after the Spirit and not to walk after the flesh. People that were being taught that every single person who is a member of the body of Christ in every city of the world, cities that prior to that, they were probably prejudiced against. Because if you know anything about the history of human interaction or the present, cities compete with each other a lot. Actually, if if you follow sports... You could see some very heated conversations about cities and states, right? These are people that are being told, hey, you know those people 500 miles away from here that wear different clothes and have a different genre of music and a different style of dress and different laws and they're, they're a different color and everything about them is different? Those are your brothers and sisters. Those are the people which you have something in common with. They talk about the church sojourning in one place, writing to the church sojourning in another. Sojourn means they're like temporarily there, right? They're like vagabonds or uh, what's a a better word? Pilgrims. Um, Vagabonds, yeah, whatever. Pilgrims or or nomads, right? Because the church in all of those places is one nation, is one kingdom. And so their affiliation is not to the nation that they're in. They're saying, we're sojourning here. But we are the church. We are the body of Christ, right? Paul is writing a letter. And this is fascinating. The fact that we have this letter is fascinating. But Paul is writing a letter to Philemon. And Philemon, we'll we'll go into it. Paul and Timotheus, we talked about this, Timothy and Paul wrote together. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to, uh, wait, sorry. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. You remember we talked about fellow laborer? Philemon was a presbyter or a bishop. It's not 
specified in uh, the Colossian church, right? We know that the, that the bishop in, Colossian, in the Colossian church was Epaphras, who's talked about in the epistle to the Colossians. He's also mentioned in this letter. His name was Epaphras, but Philemon was probably uh, with Epaphras, was a presbyter with Epaphras, who was probably the head presbyter or the episcopo bishop. Okay. Paul, this is the this is the uplifting end to the to the uh, to the sermon because everybody is very intense right now because everything has been like you know you've been getting punched in the gut with the truth this whole time. <laughs> this stuff is important; it's incredibly important. But let's talk about let's talk about that then. What does it look like? Philemon, Paul, prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. And so Philemon has a church he is the pastor of. Aphia is Philemon's wife. And... uh. Archippus, it's not specified. Hmm? Aphia, Aphia, whatever. <laughs> is, his, is his wife, and Archippus is probably their child, who Paul refers to, their son, who Paul refers to as a fellow soldier, so he is also in the ministry. But it could just be a minister who's being trained up under him that's not his physical son. But it also is possibly his physical son as well. So Philemon and Aphia and Archippus. And to the church in thy house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints." a personal letter, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you, in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine being a, uh, a presbyter or a pastor and receiving a letter from Paul the Apostle? So, who hasn't um, visited the Colossians at this point in time? Now, he's met Philemon before, probably in Ephesus, but he hasn't yet been to the church of the Colossians at this time. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother, or the inward parts, the sentimental heart of, the softer emotions of, it's a, it's a term that doesn't exist in our language, but existed in Greek, um, wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to adjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such a one as Paul the aged, or Paul the elder, and now a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, we haven't gotten to the subject of the letter yet, what Paul is writing about, but he's writing to Philemon 
and his household and his church. And he says to him, I, therefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee, enjoin means to command. In other words, I could, in Christ, command thee to do something which is convenient, right? Paul has a level of authority. Yet for love's sake, I rather beseech you, I rather ask you, being such a one as Paul the elder and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul was imprisoned at this time that he was writing this. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. This is not a epistle that is a teaching epistle. There's not a theological teaching portion of this epistle. This is a personal letter being written by Paul on behalf of someone named Onesimus. Now, who is Onesimus? My son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. So Onesimus came to Paul and was not a Christian, and Paul brought him to the Lord. But Onesimus was probably Philemon's servant, his slave. And Onesimus possibly stole from Philemon and then ran away. Right? Philemon was a wealthy Roman citizen. And uh, this is a very interesting letter that Paul is writing. And he says, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but is now profitable to thee and to me. This is Paul making a pun, because Onesimus means profitable. (laughs) Whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him that is my own bowels or my own heart whom I have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly, that thy benefit would not be because of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever." Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account." I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand, and I will repay it. Albeit, I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides. So I'm not even going to bring up the fact. As he brings it up. He's not going to collect on that, but he's saying that he will pay whatever. Right? 
Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels, my heart, in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. But withal prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. There salute the Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Mark, you know who he is. Luke, you know who he is. Demas, we talked about him. This is when he was still serving the Lord. And he was in, uh, he was with the Colossians. Epaphras is the bishop of the Colossians, right? But what's happening in this letter? Paul is saying, Onesimus ran away from you. He possibly wronged you. Now, we don't know for certain whether he was a slave or a servant or the exact relationship, but historically, it's generally considered that he was. And Paul tells Philemon, receive him back, not as a servant, but as a brother in the Lord, as an equal. And I, w- and I would have that he would stay with me to minister unto me, to be with me as he's my own son. I begot him in the Lord. But I won't do it forcibly. It would be better that your benefit be willingly And so Paul writes this letter saying that he will take on the responsibility for anything that Onesimus has done. And telling Philemon, asking Philemon to receive Onesimus, but also to release Onesimus to be with Paul and work with Paul. Now, how many of you know that if you got in trouble with the law, or stole something from someone before you got saved and you ran off and run in and run into someone. There's a whole lot of people, if their father in the faith told them, Look, I know this situation is really bad, but you need to go and reconcile that they wouldn't listen. There's a whole lot of people with very little respect for a father in the faith or a spiritual leader, or of the unity of the faith. Because Onesimus was now a part of the body of Christ. And Onesimus needed to reconcile with Philemon. And Paul was going to make that happen. And so Paul tells Onesimus, after leading him to the Lord, you need to go back and reconcile. I'm going to send you with a letter. And he sends this letter asking Philemon not only to not punish or harm Onesimus, but rather he'll pay it, but to receive him as a brother, as an equal. What do you think happened? Well, we actually see a little bit later on when Paul writes to the Colossians, Because carrying the letter to the Colossians 
is guess who? Onesimus. I mean, you want to talk about having beef. Someone robs you and runs off. Then you get a letter from your father in the faith saying, not only should you not punish them. Right? Onesimus carries the letter to the Colossians. And in fact, there is reference to him a little later on. Ignatius of Antioch, who we mentioned a number of times, writing in 107, so this is just a few years, seven or so maybe, seven to ten years after John went home to be with the Lord. And he's being carried off to be martyred. Ignatius spent most of his life, his, most of his life overlaps with the life of John the Apostle. He was alive for not that much longer after John the Apostle. And he was very up in years. So he was raised up by John the Apostle. He was alive when the books of the Bible were being written, right? He's in the church of Antioch at that time. How many of you think the church of Antioch was a strong church to be a part of? He writes, Ignatius, who is also called Theophorus, or the fire of God, or the light of God. It's a good nickname. He writes, to the church which is at Ephesus. Right? We're all in the same historical time period right now. In Asia, deservedly most happy, being blessed in the greatness and fullness of God the Father and predestinated before the ages of time that it should always for an enduring and unchangeable glory being united and elected through the true passion of the will of the Father and Jesus Christ, our God, abundant happiness through Jesus Christ and his undefiled grace. This is how all Christians wrote back then. Maybe just bishops. I have become acquainted with your name, much beloved in God, which you have acquired by the habit of righteousness, according to the faith and love in Jesus Christ our Savior, being the followers of God and stirring up yourselves by the blood of God. You have perfectly accomplished the work which was beseeming to you. This is the church that we just read that epistle. We just read what Paul wrote to them, right? Not the church that was being reprimanded. That was the Corinthians. The Ephesians were being, you know, they were just receiving the the word of the Lord, right? For on hearing that I came bound from Syria for the common name and hope, the common name uh, being Jesus, that we all share, the common hope being the faith, right? Uh, by trusting through your prayers. So he, he goes on, whatever. But he says, I received therefore your whole multitude in the name of God through Onesimus, a man of inexpressible love and your bishop in the flesh 
whom I pray you by Jesus Christ to love and that you would all seek to be like him. And blessed be he who has granted unto you being worthy to obtain such an excellent bishop. Hallelujah. And so Onesimus became the bishop of Ephesus after Timotheus had passed away. So Timothy that the epistle, first and second epistle of Timothy that was written to, that co-wrote the letter to Philemon, was succeeded by Onesimus as the bishop of Ephesus. And this, this was 45 years, this letter was written 45 years after the letter to Philemon. And so this is 45 years later. And Philemon has gone from being a slave and a fugitive to being the bishop of one of the largest and most esteemed churches in the world. The church that the Gospel of John was written from. The church that John grew old in and taught in. When John passed, Onesimus was the bishop. How's that for the Lord? How's that for the Lord? But this, this communication and the, the letters and the communications that we have in the New Testament, and Paul's as much as anyone else's, continually stress over and over. He harps on it just like I harp on it. How important the unity of the faith is and that that unity is kept in love. That unity is kept in forgiveness. That unity is kept in not not being so-and-so has wronged me, I've been hurt in church or anything like that but in forgiveness and in reconciliation. Because Paul was reconciled in a way to the rest of the church at the Council of Jerusalem. Because there were a great many people who felt that what Paul was teaching would lead people to damnation. And so by correcting that, those people that were enemies of Paul became friends of Paul. And the account goes on to describe how the church of Jerusalem sent a delegation with Paul to announce what had been determined. And the church of Antioch rejoiced greatly. The church of Antioch that would very soon after that be bishop by Ignatius, who was hanging out with Onesimus and writing letters to the Phoenicians, I'm sorry, the Ephesians. Probably not the Phoenician. Well, I'm, you know, whatever. Ephesians, right? So that reconciliation is essential. That reconciliation is what allows us to walk after the Spirit. How many of you know that if Philemon had said, No! Paul doesn't know how much this person hurt me. Paul doesn't know what this person did to me. Paul doesn't know why I have this person as an indentured servant. 
Paul doesn't know the situation. I'm not going to listen to Paul. If they've been full of themselves, if they'd esteemed the things of the natural, if they had been carnally minded, then they had every right to exact a revenge according to the law of the nation that they lived in. They had a legal right if they had been full of the things of the natural. But walking after the things of the Spirit, they recognized what this meant when Onesimus was born into the kingdom. That though a natural legal system might see the two of them as different, as different classes, having different rights, just like the natural legal system of Rome crucified Peter, a death reserved for slaves, but beheaded Paul, Because according to the natural legal system of Rome, Paul was a citizen and Peter was not. Paul had rights that Peter did not. They could not crucify Paul. They legally had to behead him instead. But Peter had no rights to the Romans. Peter was the same as a slave to the Romans. Right? But just like Onesimus and Philemon and every other member of the body of Christ, we are all one with each other. That spiritual understanding of what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, that spiritual understanding of what it means to not be full of the natural and concerned with the natural, Paul knew what Philemon would do. I don't even believe that Philemon tried to charge Paul anything. I know Paul would pay it. But what was Paul doing? Paul was acting in a way that was entirely consistent with Christianity. He was literally acting like Jesus. He was reconciling Philemon and Onesimus to each other and saying, I will pay the debt for the reconciliation. That is Christian. That is love. That that is forbearing one another in love with patience. That is forgiving others their trespasses because you recognize that God has forgiven ours. That is recognizing the things of the spiritual as being more important than the things of the natural. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so Onesimus, Onesimus would go on to be one of the carriers of the letter to the Colossians, to, the, to his people. He was a Colossian. He would go on to be one of the carriers of the letter to the Colossians that we still have today. And he would go on to become the bishop of Ephesus after Timothy, who was like Paul's disciple of disciples. And and we have writings about him with the apostolic fathers, 
with those that were raised up by John, those that were in Ephesus. That is hallelujah. Only the Lord can do things like that. Only the gospel can do things like that. And that is why the gospel is the answer for everything that's happening in the world. There's a lot of division and there's a lot of violence and revenge and retribution and anger and unforgiveness. Even in the church, there's a whole lot of natural opinions where people have issues with other people because of what group they are a part of. Right? It's funny because we all say hate the sin, but don't hate the sinner, right? Love the sinner, hate the sin. And so when it comes to a sinner, someone who's not a member of the body of Christ, we recognize that we are supposed to love them despite being hating the sin that they are committing and living in. We're supposed to recognize that this person is someone that Christ died for. He wants them to be born again and be reconciled to the body. And so we treat them in love, even though they are living in error. How much easier is it to do that for the children of God? For Christians that you meet that are living in error. Right? The problem isn't who follows who and some kind of natural division or organization. The problem is when people are not living according to the doctrine of the apostles. The problem is when people are not properly discerning the word of truth. The problem is that my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. And so, if you can reach out to the unsaved in love, not, not casting them away because of what they've done, then how much more can we fight for and recognize the unity of the body of Christ all over the world? And we don't need to wait for some kind of of natural reorganization in order to stand for what is the truth, which is that the unity of the faith, the foundation that Christ laid, the body of Christ is undivided. And so it is not until we all come to the unity of the faith. It is till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of God unto a perfect man. And so we need to be perfected. But in order to even take the first step towards that perfection, in order to walk according to the Spirit, we have to recognize the unity of the faith as being a greater truth and a more accurate reality than any natural division or any natural thing. And so we have fathers in the faith. Like Paul said, we are teachers like Christ has given to everyone. Christ has given to every Christian teachers and leaders. 
There are teachers and leaders for everybody. There ain't no Christians that are off somewhere in like a communist part of the body of Christ where there's no leaders. Right? We need leadership. We need apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists and pastors because they are the ones that are speaking to bring about that elevation, that to bring about that perfecting of the church, to bring about the fullness of and the manifestation in this earth of the unity that already exists in the spiritual, in the body of Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thanks for joining us on the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. Join us on our other podcast, Miracles Today. Connect with us at globalrevival.com and we'll see you next week.